0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is poet Elizabeth Robinson, reading from her work as part of the Yale Collection of American Literature Reading Series, held at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library on November 15, 2007. The poet is introduced by Nancy Cool, curator of the Yale Collection of American Literature. Elizabeth Robinson's work has been important to me for many years, and so I'm really quite pleased to welcome her here today and to introduce her to you. She's the author of some eight full-length collections of poetry and maybe twice that many chapbooks and other short works. She's the winner of the National Poetry Series Prize for Pure Descent, the Fence Modern Poets Prize for Apprehend, and she's a three-time recipient of the Gertrude Stein Award for Innovative American Poetry. Robinson is also an influential editor with the Literary Journal 26 magazine and is founder and editor of Instance Press and Etherdome Press, a small press devoted to publishing the work of emerging women poets. Elizabeth Robinson's poetry is an intense exploration of the volatility of language. Her work confounds expectation and thus demands careful attention. One critic recently compared her metaphor-making to a kind of linguistic sleight of hand. Robinson's poems are rich with fluid shifting images amid a deliberate sometimes forceful diction they create what might be called a music of thought a language that is at once ethereal and exact her lines unfold in a glowing lyricism that easily embodies what another critic has referred to as a kind of quote spiritual desire that term spiritual desire is apt i think in that throughout robinson's work Questions of belief are ever-present, woven subtly through her poetry, creating something like surface tension. She endlessly interrogates matters of devotion and conviction, navigating a path between, or perhaps connecting, the quotidian and the divine. I have been an avid reader of Elizabeth Robinson's work for some time, and so I can tell you, reading Robinson's work is not a passive process of absorption by which a reader can pleasantly pass the time. Reading, Robinson's poems remind us, is always an act of interpretation, an engagement. In Elizabeth Robinson's poetry, reading is a practice, a process, in which reader and writer are allied in compelling, if not uncomplicated, ways. The acts of reading and writing are linked inextricably. Writer and reader meet on the page, and there, together, they work, wrestle, struggle, negotiate to create the meaning of a text. You reader, Robinson writes in a poem retelling the story of Hansel and Gretel, come closer and extend your fingers through the bars of the cage. So as you listen today to Elizabeth Robinson read her work, lean in a little closer because her work demands thoughtful attention. Trust me, your concentration will be well rewarded. Remember, the nature of treasure, she tells us, is to appear translucent as it reflects.
1: Thank you to Nancy and Richard and all who made it possible for me to come here. What I had planned to read, I believe I will not read. It has to do, I think, partly with listening to Graham and partly with the weather, which is most welcome to me because I live in highly arid Colorado. So I think I want something more watery right now, and I'm hoping that this will suit you as watery. Hero falling upon the bright, riding the vague, a cave and varying the sea, no art will review as image or mage to repeat the worm in the word The charm of the cave is not haven but reverses the fallen his various return Banal tide tiding breach and lull where I the traitor hide Siding with the branch deciding the bough, whose mouth buffets the base word or the base reach wind not tide Word that means as it sounds, world in whom, reverie, redounds, lisp and hoard, lexicon. Or, hovering, half-hid, warning, sound, hear, hard, the word made overt, world in whom, in whom, in whom. Loosen the cave, it's hold on the dark, beholden dark, the dream is involute, a white cave, a flowering, whole, waxy tissue of darkness, involuntary wave listen, fasten the dark to its involuntary sleigh, a slur on the light, a lit the hollow, bright grave, white hollow forward, lambent loose snow. Uh, And then I'm going to read these poems um, and sort of dedicate the, the energy of the poems today to Nancy because she published one I think one that's not in this group, actually, but it's part of this group. So there's an absent poem here that um, is present nonetheless that Nancy published in a curated thing on Counterpath and um, has to do with a partly a sense of landscape and the kind of psychogeography of landscape in the ocean where I've lived most of my life. And um, this encounter I had with a aggressive, large heron who became a sort of character for me that traveled with me when I was far from that landscape. I saw through the stranded shore and creature, large and blue, saw and forced I back. Foxy, the creature circled itself, circled itself in vine and water, its blue and gold throat. Radiant as iris around pupil, slippery enclosure the grove of sight makes were vision purely hostile, the eye blurs, swallows, forces back the stream, the blue, covert green. What benefit rises up from the crush of color, the almost invisible that tints? What claw or paw or hand? Whomever it was, that saw no cause in the bird, that he be a bird, whomever it was that would leave in disrepair. These ashes, this hand, or otherwise the pure idea of hue, the cliff that curls and crumbles into whom dust purer than color. Outsiders judge our brutality without knowing what pain the ritual causes to its perpetrators. We are forced to fly, yet we are not kin, or were we? Soft, infectious rhythm passing on air. That was the gift of skimming above ground where the daughter sees him, above the dead and singular, isolate. Refusal to see the shock of yellow the claw treading the ground surreptitiously alive, grim in its discrimination between the lost and aversion of life, skimming, sparse, above its own weight. Grass, the horizon that it implies, a world clean in the mouth, beneath the smear of the sky, ongoing hunger, Beneath that, the character who plays charades, lower and lower, all you may not surmount. Modesty is its own anger, fizzing, representative of the overhanging sky. Having seen some Gina Barnes books downstairs, I have to find one of the millions of obsessive poems I wrote about Gina Barnes. This is the only one that I ever thought was worthy of publication. It comes from reading a um, biography of her in which she seemed perpetually displaced and kind of out of community. Um, So it's called Lodger. One, tawny whitewashed crust, whoever you may yet be, you do not rescind yourself. Eggshell, one beige and leather, the other hard as obsidian. Slighted Husks glycerin interior thirsts Hatches into lonely tenancy Beck and call This fainting slight of calcified hand Juggles as it retracts It resides Two To fall back is to break out Very letters of your literacy Top heavy with fatigue they do not interpret you as sending word. Example, grit twined round with membrane. Is it pearl or nest? Alternative, rounding wit of the harlequin. To be a jester is to be a nomad. Homophonous issue, shoe. The progeny of the glazier is glass. You must move out, a window. Three. Hatchlings faulted wisdom Rent is its own gestation Some wizardry would implant you, shade you, bring undesired age What good is wealth in pinch-penny homage Painted over, opal, carpeted in fecundity You, the transience exemplar Moved to haven, albumin, yolk, The last laugh's remediated shelter So um, this is a series of poems. This book, Apprehend, um, emerged from having children and reading them fairy tales, which I consider to be the main reason one has children so that one can read to them (laughs) and read things that one wants to read. Um, And uh, so I was kind of re-inhabiting fairy tale material and thinking about the ethics of fairy tales, which are often about necessity and survival. Um, But then my son uh, became obsessed with this, sort of bestiary and so there's one there's one section that's some dragons so I will read the fire drake and this has nothing to do with uh, my sense of ethics it really just wasn't uh, the narrative that he was telling me that I transposed when you are made in anti-alphabetical order verbs always in the accusative are vanquished by the genitive you will be buried in a cemetery with circular walls. But since death is unreliable, you will repine. The holiness of the sight is not sanctuary. A little kindling breathes back at your fire. The vernacular is finally a disappointment. Two, now I was your lover, but so discreet, you hardly knew what you did. I took the thick rind off the fruit and to your tender fangs. Where the fulcrum of a myth is translation, fire-breathing is not just magic. It is strictly a set of rules. Orchards are made of trunks and the expenditure of branches and the artifactual arrival of fruit. Three. One day you will be found dead and again not and in distress. Red, skin-molting, decoy, treasure. Those words most besotted with you are not those which are most loyal. Four. The dictionary I have in my hand says that death and burial are the same in meaning. I have not obscured my relation to you as lover, sans beloved. No pages torn from books. Sheer with a minute print of the Bible. They came, and they were heroes, and they tore away branches all oblivious to fruit. They saw us light this up with sulfur and make pulp and mill the paper of secreted documentary. Five. Now a maiden loves a dragon, and the dragon might come upon a quality of moral rightness and adopt it. The dragon might be of surpassing beauty, of indeterminate gender, might have precise appetites, circular wall. The dragon reads on the throat of the maiden words she cannot view herself. There are rules here, you understand, that will not err and cannot forgive. Uh, So now I'm going to move to more recent work. And um, I'm going to read to you from two pieces from... a. um, something that will turn into a book soon, and I had at some point, of course, as we all probably had, to read some Edwin Arlington Robinson poems, um, especially in high school, in junior high. And I could not refrain from noting that he has the same initials that I have. So for a period of almost Two decades, when I have sort of been um, at a loss for something to write, I take his tit- like a title from a poem and all his line and rhymes, and then I shunt out the rest of his text and put mine in. So uh, I don't know; it's it amused me. So this one's called the Garden, and you'll see he was very very fond of mankind and sheaves. They appear in almost every poem. Little sprout hobbling fawn overgrown with riper colors, mackerel-spotted leaves that backtrack in ignited sheaves. Your scythe nicks at the spectrum. Alone or not, you make the sign of captivity. Thrown upstream, an unknown herd gathers on grounds of convection. Dozing creature imbued with color found in that wave. Here is the diminutive of your own hue. Turn again to the borders of paradise. Indeed, your trespass cradles you as though to fly over your kind to the nest of confiscations. Small peaked roof, tiny hood, the shelter you read is your own transfiguration. A sign, an unreadable sign, secreted in the seed, you, swollen conjuries, your permissive mind. the corridor. Buckle refuses fastening. Shoelace for aught one tries, prefers the knot. Let the whim rise up the body, swim in nudity, not the drapery of volition. Him who says otherwise lives elsewhere. The tremor said little for its wardrobe, a bare space inhabited in name only. But lest you think the occupant is dead, avert your gaze to see that obduracy is the same, from one state to the next. Unclothed all along, like the emperor, what one did was tear the fabric from the procession. A thin song rose from the ranks, the pot overboiled its lid, and naked fluid and tune poured out. Tremor again, believe the reluctance of this apparel as an escape in the end. What better way to retrieve the passage rent in dishabille but to call it friend? Uh, And then because this sort of led to a preoccupation with persona and uh, I thought I would follow that out by looking at some of the poetry uh, by Pessoa, who you may know wrote under a series of pseudonyms he called heteronyms and published under these names. Um, And I was interested in the idea that I could take on the percent of a person taking on a persona and that there would be this sort of infinite displacement. Um, So a lot of these poems deal with the idea of Operating under alias, but also quote at certain points from Pessoa. So imagine me as a sort of turn of the century or well, Portuguese civil servant. Male. I don't know. Alias, nom de plume. I am shy. I counter this by checking the definition of shy, which I tick off with my pen. Finished. I am not shy, but mute complete, impervious to the loquacious word, sheltered in the shy one. The shy one, a name, a lank, pronoun easily toppled. This is a quote from Pessoa. Without syntax, there is no lasting emotion. Immortality is a creation of grammarians. But I digress as I return. Dialogue, that is, the cripple's sovereign union. See my skull cowl, The chamber of the ears disclose their own deforming recoil, that is, recall, relative scruples. Say hair falls in my face or I make a typographical error. The indices of perfection might be a matter of personal grooming. I read a review of a book I read, which I wrote. I excoriate the editor for sloppiness. I pull hair from between the pages to weave for myself a hair shirt. Uh, I was supposed to be writing an article about <laughs> um, Barbara Guest, who's a poet whom I esteem in her is here, right? And I couldn't, I was doing anything I could to avoid writing the paper. And so I wrote something that probably would appal her called The Blue Stairs, which is the title of one of her books. It bears no relation to her otherwise. By now, you are inclined to laugh at my objection, but just see the steps that I must climb every single day and the den to which they lead. See if your mind can be changed by the words you stamp into the steps as you climb beside me, behind me, below me. I would have added another stanza. I would have raised my objection by the rhythm of these increments. I would have mounted on laughter, humping it like a dog ascending. And the blue stairs led naturally to blue movie. I undo your necktie and put your voice here beside me. Let me tell you how I will part your voice at its cleft and place a sweet on your tongue. To each moment, its own procession, and there, its cleft. On the pillow, in the Bible, the Red Sea parted, cleft, thus all that passed through. Monogram. Just as the initials suggest a beginning, the nascent name, so they invest their object, with humblest economy, not to disclose the name when the name suggests the beginning of the self, to be less than a name, to suggest possession of the undisclosed.
0: Thank you. That was poet Elizabeth Robinson reading at the Beinecke Library on November 15, 2007.